I wanna look at a certain aspect of the cross that maybe we don't talk about as much. We, we usually focus on uh, the forgiveness of sins, the removal of our sins, because that is everything to us. But there's another perspective of the cross, something else that it was symbolizing to us that I think is important for us to think about today and to learn and to study. And so we're gonna go on a journey today because we're gonna have to talk about how the culture was for certain things in Jesus's time for, for the Jewish people. And then we're gonna, the passage we're gonna look at is the Lord's Supper, the last meal he eats with his disciples before he goes to the cross and dies. And then that's gonna give us an idea of where we are today. And then we're gonna use that to look at where we're going. So we are really gonna be on a journey this morning. So before we read the scripture, let's talk for a moment about what a Jewish wedding was like in the times of Jesus. Because it's important for us to have this reference point or else we will miss something symbolic he was doing uh, with his disciples before he went to the cross. So I'm gonna do my best just to quickly describe what was the protocol, what was the norm for a wedding uh, for a Jewish couple. So a wedding consisted of two ceremonies. Two ceremonies is what marked that a Jewish couple was getting married in the times of Jesus. And so the first one was the considered the betrothal, and I have the Hebrew word up there for it. And this is when the family, the, the father and son, were gonna go to the future bride, the bride-to-be's house, to her family's house. So the father and son, they go there and they offer gifts and they say, we, you know, the father says, I would like my, your daughter to marry my son. Here are some gifts for you and your family that kind of show what, what it's worth to lose, to give this daughter into our family. So the, the father and son would present these gifts and the bride's father and her, they would receive the gifts and if it was agreeable and to mark entering to, into the covenant, they would pour a glass of wine and the bride would take the glass of wine and she would take a drink. And that was her entering into the marriage covenant. And then after she would take a drink of the wine, then the husband would take the same cup and he would take a drink of the wine and that was him entering into the marriage covenant. So here's what's interesting. At this point, they were legally married. They were husband and wife, but they did not live together at this point. At this point, the son would go home with his father, the, or the, the husband would go home with the father. The wife would stay, the new wife would stay with her family, and the husband would then be responsible for building onto his father's house. And so he would have to build a room or a suite or an upstairs, however it worked in that house, because they lived in communities. He, now when we get married, we're like, peace out, you know, and you move away and you start from scratch and you're scraping and saving, you have nothing and you're, you know, sitting on the floor because you don't have furniture. It's different that you moved in, they would stay with their family, they would build onto the home and the family lived together. And so they're legally married, but they're not living together. And here's another kicker is they have not consummated the, the marriage yet. And so for this period of time where this, the husband would be building on to the house, he would not be done until the father said, okay, it's good enough. And so he'd have to work and complete it until the father was satisfied with the job done. And then when the dad said, okay, son, 
the room is ready, the suite is ready, you may now go get your bride and bring her home to you. That would start the second celebration, the second ceremony to mark this wedding. And so the groom would get all his groomsmen ready, they would start getting the preparations. And then at some point, after getting the go-ahead, when things were ready, they would do this colorful, fun procession from his home to go pick up his bride from where she's been living with her parents. And then her and all her bridesmaids and parties and however that worked, there would be this procession back to their new home. They would then go in and consummate the marriage. Talk about awkward. Uh, and then they would, when he would come out, then it would start a week-long celebration of eating and partying with the family. And so that, those two ceremonies made up a wedding at that time. And so with that backdrop, now let's read the scriptures that, that tell us about the Lord's Supper. And we're going to, this is the last meal he has with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And this was the Passover meal they were eating. And so I'm gonna read from two, um, from two of the gospels. All the gospels record this. Each one has their own perspective of, of what they recorded. So Luke, we're gonna read Luke because he kind of gives details of the meal. And then I'm gonna read from John because John records all the table conversation. He records what Jesus was saying and what the disciples were saying. So we're gonna, I'm gonna be pulling from both gospels. Let's begin. Luke 22. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And so what is happening here is he is symbolizing that God is now making a covenant with his people. This was a betrothal. He was offering to marry his, his people. And the disciples represent all of us. We were all brought in with this act. And he was saying, he, you know what the gift is, the, the prize that we're bringing, the, the offering we're bringing of worth to, to say, this is, what I'm, this is what you're worth, was his very life, his body. And so it wasn't a couple of cattle. It wasn't some gold. It wasn't some silver. He said, here is my body. This is what I'm giving up for you. This is what you're worth. I'm gonna let myself be killed for your sins. And he, then he gives them a cup and he says, here is the covenant you are making with God. And so congratulations, you're engaged. If you have done, if you have accepted the work of the cross, if you've taken communion, then you are entering into that same covenant. You're engaged. We are in the betrothal phase with with God. This is a wild idea, isn't it? But this is what Christians, this is what the Bible tells us to be true. And so this is what he was symbolizing that night as they entered into this new covenant, something new, that the cross was now the atonement for sin. The rules and regulation were, were done away with. And so after the meal, after they eat, Jesus says some more things to them. And so we're going to look at a few of them. He says, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? 
When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going. So Jesus at this point is making sure they get it, making sure they get what symbolically is happening here, a reference that they would all understand well. And he's saying, okay, now you know, we've entered into this covenant, we're betrothed, we're, we're, we're in this covenant together, but I've gotta go. I've got to go back to my dad's house. You know what's happening here, right? I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare your new home. And soon I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you and there's going to be that wedding procession where we celebrate, where we're together forever in a new place. And so not only does he say he's going to his father's home, but he's like, I'm going to leave you with the gift says, I'm leaving with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you, I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. And so this is where we are at. We are waiting for Jesus to return. We are waiting for the second celebration, the second ceremony, where the groom is going to come and bring his bride, who is us, to the place he has prepared for us. Now, I recognize that this is probably a strange imagery for men, you know. I'm sure you don't love being called, like, you're a bride, picture yourself, getting ready for a wedding. But you know what? The scriptures are full of this imagery. He picked it, so we're going to go with it today. But I'm going to describe at the end here what we should picture when we say the bride. Um, You're not necessarily needing to picture yourself in a dress. So... So the answer to what now, so what now? We're after the cross, we're betrothed, we've started, we're in this covenant with him. What now? Well, we're waiting. And, you know, I realize that's kind of a bummer thing to say because we hate waiting as a people, humankind, right? We don't like it. We don't enjoy the process of waiting. And there's many things that you do throughout your day that prove that we don't enjoy the waiting process. Just think about driving. Just think about traffic. If that light turns green, and if that person doesn't step on the gas and get moving as fast, then I'm beep, beep, right? Pastor Peter did a whole sermon on it. Beep, beep. Like, let's move. Let's go. Right? Because what am I going to do? Just sit here? sit here and wait when I could be doing something, we can't, we can't stand it. Or how about if you're waiting in line for a few minutes for something? If I'm waiting more than probably a minute, 60 seconds, I'm most likely going to pull out my phone and do something. I don't know, because I'm not a crazy person who's just going to stand here doing nothing and waiting, right? Like we want to be doing something. We cannot stand just waiting and not, not accomplishing something, not having something to do. And so as Christians, there's this frustration within us because we are waiting to receive the fullness of what Jesus has done. You think, well, wait a minute, we have the fullness. We have forgiveness of sins. Yes, yes. He has overcome sin. He's conquered death. We have resurrection power, but we don't live with him yet in our new home. We are still in our first home. We are still in this world. We are still in a world that is carnal, that is sinful, that is selfish. We live in a world with brain tumors, with cancer, 
with racism, with poverty, with child abuse, with systems that need to be reformed because they're broken. And we feel frustrated because we know the answer is Christ. We know the answer is a covenant relationship with Jesus, but that's not what this earth is fully into, is it? Not everyone has accepted that covenant relationship. And so we feel this frustration because we're waiting to receive the second part of the celebration. We're ready to be in a place in our home where all the, where our sin is stripped away from us, our, the, the carnal nature is gone, and we are in that fullness and completeness in him. And so we get to, we feel this struggle within us. First Corinthians says that now we see in part, that one day we'll see in full and we'll know fully, but right now it's like, it's like seeing a reflection in a mirror or dimly lit. And so we're in between, this is where we're at, we are in between these two ceremonies. And we don't know the day when, when Jesus will return. No one knows that. But we are to anticipate it. We're to long for it. We are to anticipate and look forward to the day that that second wedding celebration happens. And because there's a difference between anticipating and waiting. There's a difference in us. There's a difference in our attitude. There's a difference in our faith. When you are anticipating something, let's say it's a vacation. You're taking a vacation and it may not be for six months from now but the date is booked, the plane tickets are bought, the Airbnb is ready. And so each day that passes, I am just checking it out of the calendar. And I don't see the time that I'm waiting as a waste. I see it as preparation. The time between now and the thing that I'm anticipating. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing for it, right? I'm looking, up the, I'm looking up the map of the city. I'm buying tickets for things we wanna do. I'm preparing, I'm ordering things on Amazon that we'll need for our trip. The time between what, where I am now and where I want to be is anticipation, it's preparation. I'm pumped. But when I'm waiting, that kind of makes me feel like something's late or they made a mistake or maybe they didn't really put my order in because why am I still waiting for my food? Is it going to come? Is it not? Should we say something? When I'm waiting, let's say for a promotion at work and I'm like, hey, am I on track? They're like, you're on track for a promotion. Just keep doing what you're doing. Every week I don't get that promotion, my aggravation level goes up. And I start to think, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe this isn't the right place for me. Maybe when you're just waiting for something, I view time as a waste. Gosh, I could have been doing something else. I could have been, maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe I'm not in the right church because I haven't found a mate yet. Maybe I'm not. When we don't, when we're just waiting, we start to doubt versus anticipating if we go back to the imagery that the scripture gives us of a wedding, think about the groom when he's, when he's standing at the end of the aisle. He's waiting for his bride to come to him, to receive his bride. Is that groom waiting or is he anticipating, right? When she steps out and starts walking down the aisle, is he like, <laughs> we've all been sitting here. And we've been waiting because you're an hour late, right? No, he's not waiting at the end of that aisle. He's anticipating. He's pacing. He's, 
you know, do you, that, that's like one of the best things at a wedding is just to watch the groom, right? Who's with me? Who's just like zeroed in watching the groom? Because they do all kinds of amazing things when they're anticipating. Some of them are really nervous and they're like, they're, they, they have to sit down because they might pass out. We haven't had a fainter in a while. It's been a while since we had one of those, but they're, they're great. Those that pass out because they're just so nervous. Then you have the ones that get the giggles and they're just like laughing at everything and all the groomsmen are laughing and the mothers are like, be serious, be serious. You know, some of them are giggling and a lot of them are criers and boy, doesn't that just, oh, it gets you. Gets you, they're already, before, yeah, we're not even talking about the stags, like we're not even gonna go there. But you know, but before, the, before the brides even come and they're already like, you know, they're deep breathing and then the second, I mean, you just see a toe step out the door and they're just like, you know, and just... Oh, it's so good. The anticipation. What, who cares? There's so much drama leading up to a wedding. You know, the bridesmaids aren't even talking to each other. The parents and the daughter, they're fighting until they realize, oh, I need your money, so I'm going to make up with you. Yeah, there is so much drama. But guess what? When that wedding day is there and you're standing there at the aisle and the br- doesn't, it's all done, right? Who cares? Who cares if it rains? Who cares if your cake falls over? Our cake fell over at our wedding. It was so hot. We hated our guests, so we planned an outdoor wedding in June. Because <laughs> we're like, we don't care. We have to get married. Sorry. Yeah, and so everyone's like, so everyone's just like wet. And, it's, and so they came up to my room and they're like, we have some news. And I was like, oh my gosh, he left. He, he's not going to go through with it. <laughs> And they're like, just don't, just don't freak out. Your cake fell over. And I was like, oh my gosh, who cares? Who cares? Throw the cake in the dirt. I don't care. Is he still here? Cool. My gosh. When that moment is there, it doesn't matter what drama, what happened. It's like, I'm so close to being together forever with this person that I love. And so this is what we're doing in this time when we're waiting. We don't know when it's going to be, but we are to have anticipation. When eternity is on our mind, we live different. We treat people different in light of that. We act different. We make decisions different. We have a different level of confidence. So when we're wrestling with our sin, when we're wrestling with self-esteem issues, with, with the need to prove myself through my wealth or my work or how, all these things, and, and we can get annoyed, like, God, when are you gonna heal me of this fully? Like, when am I gonna be over this? Am I always gonna wrestle with the same thing? And it's irritating and it's frustrating and it's discouraging, but what it should also be is something that makes us long for heaven. Long for eternity, because when I'm frustrated, I'm like, when will I stop feeling that pull to look at pornography? When am I gonna stop being so insecure? When am I gonna know that you, are, you have truly adopted me and I'm not, I have full acceptance? I may wrestle with this the rest of my life, but I know this life, but I know the day is coming. I know you're coming back. I know the wedding ceremony is gonna happen. And when that day comes, this will no longer be an issue for me. I'll no longer be in pain or whatever it is that you have to wrestle through. And so what I'm gonna ask God to do for us today is that he will turn not just our frustration and and the things we're wrestling with, but he will turn that into a longing 
for heaven to make us say, I'm ready for that day. In the scriptures, it says we're supposed to say, please, God, come back soon. Please, Lord, come soon. And when I was younger, I was like, well, I don't really want him to come soon because this life is fun. Like, this is great. And I didn't realize until I'm getting older and life's getting harder that I'm like, man, the people who are asking that are people who are really going through difficulty. When life's easy and perfect, it's hard to imagine to want eternity because it's But when you're wrestling, when you're struggling, when this world is difficult, then it makes us say, yes, God, please, Lord, come. Come, I'm ready for that day. So please understand that I am not saying today that we just ignore all our problems. I'm not like, God could come tomorrow, so don't pay your bills and don't work on your marriage. And who cares? Don't try to make a difference in this world because I'm not saying that. I hope I'm being clear. That's not the message I'm sending. What I am saying is that we don't have to despair when difficulty happens, when things are out of our control. We don't have to despair because we know how the story ends. We know what's coming. Yes, we need breakthrough today. Yes, we need God's provision today. Yes, we need to try to change and reform some of our systems that are broken and make a difference in this world. Yes, we need to work towards all those things. But when difficulty comes, when it doesn't go how I'm wanting, when I'm faced with hardship, I don't lose hope because I know the ending. Think about this. How could Jesus promise us peace? The gift he left us, he said, I'm going to give you peace. How could he say that when he knew what we would go through in this life? When he knew the difficulty that we would face? How could he say, but my gift is peace? He can promise us that because he told us how it's going to end. He told us the ending. My cousin Emily, she, uh, if she watches a movie or TV show, she, has to, she will Google the ending, and the whole plot before we can go to a movie. And I'm like, why are you crazy? Why do you do this? How can you live this way? You're taking the joy out of the movie. And she's like, I can't, I can't. If I don't know how it's gonna end, I'm gonna be so anxious the whole time. I gotta know, are the guy and girl gonna end up together? I gotta know, are they gonna overcome the bad guy? So she has to Google the ending so that she has peace when she's watching the movie. Guess what? That's what Christ did for us. That's what scriptures do for us. He gave us the ending. So, we, so even when the climax of the story happens and the bad guys seem like they're winning and it seems like the hero of the story can't get up again, we know the ending is coming. We know. Second Corinthians. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. It's not saying small like, oh, those things shouldn't hurt you. It shouldn't be hard. It doesn't mean it like that. He means when, when you compare a life of 80, let's say 80 years, when you compare that to forever, then it's small. That's, that span of time is very small. It's not saying that, you're, that God doesn't care about your troubles. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. I'm going to have the band close us out with a song, but I want to try to set up this ending here for us. I want to try to paint a picture of what the bride of Christ is. Because like I said earlier, maybe that's like, "Mm, 
the imagery kind of falls flat for you. Because either you're a male or you're just young and you don't really care about a wedding. You're like, that doesn't interest me. That's not an exciting image. When, we, when scriptures talk about the bride, and in this song we're talking about the bride of Christ, don't picture yourself in a dress. But that's not the image we're going for here. When I picture the bride of Christ, when I'm reading about it in scripture, when I'm singing about it in a song, I picture this community. I picture my whole family together in a crowd. I picture, my, I picture Dave and I's small group with us. I picture this church. And we're all here together. I picture my Aunt April and my grandparents who are already there waiting for us. So when I hear about the bride of Christ, that's what I visualize, that we're all together. And in Revelations 19, it describes this second celebration, describes when the groom is gonna come back for his bride. And it says, we're all gonna be there together. And we're gonna be singing, holy, holy, holy. Look how great he is. Look how awesome he is. And maybe to you that's like, well, that, that's the climax. That sounds kind of like lame. You know, we're just gonna stand around singing. But think, think about this. This, this uh, example is gonna fall way short of what this moment's gonna be like. But it's the best thing I could think of. Think about when you would go to a concert, if you liked concerts when you were younger. Not going to a concert now. As an adult, you sit in a chair and you're like, oh, that music was so nice. When I would go to concerts when I was younger, I would be down in the crowd, close as I could get all my friends around me. And so when our, the, our, our favorite band came out and the music's playing, we're jumping, we're laughing, we're hugging. When they play my favorite song, I'm hugging my best friend. This is my song. You know, you are pumped, you are hyped. If you're not a concert person, then think of going to a game. A game like your favorite football team, whatever. And you're there with your friends and your body's painted and you're in your team shirt. And the, the athletes, do something amazing. I'm, I'm not a sports person, but whatever that amazing thing would be. And you turn to the friends you went with and you're high-fiving. Yeah, did you see that? Okay, imagine that feeling only like times, whatever, times eternity. And so we're gonna be there. And when we get to see Christ, when we get to see Christ, unfiltered, with his flesh stripped away, we get to see him fully. And we're gonna to get to see different parts of his character. And so when something is shown and we get to see his mercy, his justice, his love, his holiness, whatever one, we're gonna see that. We're gonna be like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna to turn to my small group and be like, do you see that? We talked about this. How many years did we talk about this character trait? Wow. And then when we get to see the Trinity in that relationship, three persons loving each other, David's gonna be jumping up and down, high-fiving me. That's his favorite doctrine to talk about. And so when he's gonna get to see the Trinity in there, he's gonna be screaming. And when we see another character attribute of how God adopted us, how our identity is totally in him, Salem's gonna turn around, just gonna be like, Mom, I get it. That feeling is gone of feeling lost from being adopted. It's fully, it's gone now. I get it now. We're going to be there together. The most exciting thing we could ever imagine. Cheering each other on. And Revelations 19, you know what it says the fine linens are that we're dressed in? It says the fine linens that the bride is adorned in is our good deeds, our righteous deeds that we did for Christ. That's what he's, we're going to be adorned in. That's what we're bringing to the groom. 
That's what's making us look um, be even more amazing to him is that we're bringing him what we did for him on this earth. So whatever you're doing, your generosity, the times you serve and you think no one sees you, it's not wasted. That's what we're gonna be dressed in. The last thing before they, they finish this out. The kingdom, in the kingdom of God, it says that those who are least in this kingdom on this earth are gonna be first. And those who are first in this world, they're gonna be last. We still gotta be there, but we're not gonna be the, have the best seats in the house. And so those in this world that maybe have the least amount of resources, the marginalized, when I think about this, when I picture the bride, I think about my nephew, Mark, with autism. He's gonna have the best seat in the house. He gets front row seats and Ransom and Olive and Alex and Hayden and all our friends and children with special needs that may have maybe have the least amount of resources, that struggle the most in this life, whoever else is marginalized, they get the best seat. And so when we're at that concert, they're in the front row and they're turning around, they're saying, do you see this? And we're all gonna be cheering with them. So in this moment, we're gonna end with this song of worship. My prayer is that God would sow eternity even more into your heart. That the frustration you feel that we all feel with the brokenness of this world and the things we wrestle with and that feeling of waiting that we absolutely hate, God make us long even more for eternity. That we view our time here as the last kind, the last seconds in a game where we're trying to win as many people as we can. We want to see as many people, we want the bride to be as big as it possibly can on that day. I want all my family members there. I want my neighbors there. And so we view the time here on earth as the final seconds clicking down in that final game. Father, sow eternity even deeper in our hearts this morning. Amen.